0: 1 to 10. Let me make this point about this passage. I don't, I don't think the subject jumps out immediately. It, it, it might for you, but I'm not sure. It looks like a, a couple disjointed subjects that have come to us from Jesus right out of those parables and right on the front end of the, the, the ten lepers. So there's a lot of ways that this could be put together. You could actually make them individual sermons. You're going to look at not causing your your brother or sister to stumble. You're going to look at forgiveness. You're going to look at their request to increase their faith. And then you're going to look at the unworthy and unprofitable servant. But I, I, I don't think it's disconnected at all. I think Jesus is talking about what the Christian community looks like. And that's our title. The Christian community. And I think that it's all intentional how he has woven those subjects together in this one very brief passage. And that's what we're going to look at this morning. So in as much as it doesn't seem to jump right out, I, I think we'll get there through here. We, we preached it last night and today, and someone just came to the fellowship hall on, after the nine and said, Pastor, I, I was here last night with my wife, but I had to come back. I wanted to hear it again. and 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 some have said after either of those two services that it was convicting or it was comforting. So remember what the, the, the pastor's responsibility is. To comfort the afflicted and to afflict the comfortable. So I'll see you in the fellowship hall, you can tell me if you were comforted or if you were afflicted. And, and, and that will have nothing to do with me. It will be him. Okay, ready? Hear now the word of God. Jesus said to his disciples, Things that cause people to sin are bound to come, but woe to that person through whom they come. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea with a millstone tied around his neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. So watch yourselves. If your brother sins, rebuke him, and if he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. The apostles said to the Lord, increase our faith. He replied, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, you can say to this mulberry tree, be uprooted and planted in the sea and it will obey you. Suppose one of you had a servant plowing or looking after the sheep. Would he say to the servant when he comes in from the field, come along now and sit down to eat? Would he not rather say, prepare my supper, get ready, get yourself ready and wait on me and while I eat and drink, and after that you... May eat and drink. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also, when you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants. We have only done our duty. And may God add his rich blessing to his inspired and errant infallible word. Pray with me. Father, we're here by divine design, which means you have something to speak into each heart. Speak now through this broken vessel. Make it a word of salvation for the unsaved, comfort for those in storm winds, and rest for the tired, weary, and heavy laden. Give us ears to hear and minds to understand and hearts that beat for nothing smaller than the Lord Jesus Christ. We have come this day seeking a fresh encounter with the living God, so help us to put away all worldly cares that we might center our hearts on home. So come, now fount of every blessing. Unclutter our minds and unburden our hearts that we might see Jesus and Him only. And it's in Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said. Okay, under the heading of the Christian community, which is what I believe this passage is primarily teaching collectively. And we could break it down into little subjects, but we'll just look at it as the community itself. Three things that uh, I think we can see. Number one, there's a mark in the community. And again, there's lots of marks for the Christian community, but in this passage, we'll find a mark. And then after the mark, we'll, we'll find a mandate. There's a clear mandate that we're given by Jesus. And then finally, the, the, what holds it all together, how, how can you produce the mark and accomplish the mandate? Certainly, there's only one way, through the master. So the master of the community. Oh, so you ready? We're going to head out into some deep water. Let our nets down for a catch. Number one. The mark of community. Luke 17, to 3. Things that cause people to sin are bound to come. So let's just break it down as we go. What does that mean? Well, we, we can be the cause of brothers and sisters sinning. They're bound to come. So he says that. But then he goes on. But woe to the person through whom they come. So now he says, you, you need to pay attention to your life, to your witness, to your testimony to your language to your actions people are watching people are looking to you so he says yes things things are bound to come but woe to you then he goes deep watch what happens and and again to fully grasp the 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 depth of the meaning of this next passage here you need the context of that culture in the ancient world to to die by drowning was was probably one of the the greatest fears that they had. They were very fearful and had a great dread of the sea. I remember back in in my early years, I thought that, that drowning would perhaps be the worst way to perish when I was an ocean rescue lifeguard. And I believed that. And there were some rescues that we made, and there were times we spent some time underwater. And I believed that to be true until I was then elevated beyond that and went into the fire service. And then I was convinced that dying... With flames would have been worse than being drowned in the sea. So this was a picture for them of the sea. And Jesus now says something very remarkable. Listen to these words. It would be better for him to be thrown into the sea, which they dreaded, with a millstone. What's a millstone? It's this large, enormous stone placed on top of another stone that would be turned and rotated by a handful of beasts of burden. It was that big to crush grain into flour. So he's giving them this awful picture, this massive millstone tied around your neck and you thrown into the sea, which meant there would be no hope for you. You would plummet to the bottom. So this is what he's saying. It would be better to be thrown into the sea with a millstone around your neck than for him to cause one of these little ones to sin. Now, what he's not saying about little ones is your children. Bless you. He's not talking about your little children. He's talking about children of the faith, meaning those who would be more spiritually immature. So there are some that you are more mature in the faith, and there are some that you would say you're less mature, right? So he's saying that those who are more spiritually immature, you have a duty and a responsibility to them. And yet the gospel gives us great freedom, yes? There's lots of freedoms in the gospel. There's lots of things that you can do. But if you had somebody that that you knew, that you were spending time with, who struggled with alcohol, and you knew that person did that, are you free to drink alcohol? Sure. There's no sin against the consumption of alcohol. What would Jesus say? It would be better for you to abstain from that. Why? Because of the weaker brother, the one who's struggling. So yes, you're free. We have lots of freedoms. But just because we're free to do it doesn't mean we should do it. And what he's saying is that your your salvation should bend outward toward other people. That your salvation is not primarily about you. Your salvation encompasses far more than you. And we'll look at that more deeply in a moment. Let's go to Romans 14, 13, which really puts it together. He finishes, so watch yourself. So pay attention to the impact that you're having in the lives of others, I'll never forget in, in in kindergarten, all four of my children, and I still have them. Not my children, I have my children, but I have this thing that they made in kindergarten. You know what they made? They made their footprints. I'll never forget the first one I got from Brock. So he got his little feet on this this laminated placard, and you know what it says underneath? "Be careful where you go. I'm walking in your footsteps." I have all four of those, and I think about that often. Now, I try to tell them, listen, it would be better for you to pay more attention to Jesus than to me because I don't walk worthy of the Lord all the time. But I got the point. What was the point? What you do impacts the people that you're around. The well that you drink from affects all those you drink with. You understand? And Jesus is saying, you have an obligation that transcends yourself. So now in Romans, watch how this all ties together. Make up your mind not to put a stumbling block or obstacle in the way of a brother or sister. So you have a duty, a duty, and we'll get to the duty at the end. You have a duty and a responsibility beyond yourself. You know how many people say, well, listen, it's my life, I'll do what I want with. No, it's not your life. And no, you don't have the freedom to do what you want with it. It's not yours, it's his. Well, if I'm not hurting, if I'm not hurting anybody, what difference does it make? You are, you're hurting yourself, And make no mistake, you are hurting others, those who love you and care for you. You you, you don't live in isolation. Even if you choose to live intentionally isolated from people, you're not an isolation. You're connected. We're all interconnected to each other. So he says, don't cause anyone to stumble. Now, you ever wonder why in the New Testament there are so many one another's? You ever counted them up? <clears throat> depends on how you count them you can come up with i've come up with 59 one another's what is that right right bear one another's burdens forgive one another do not slander one another love one another all of these one another's you ever wonder why because your salvation is more about the other person than it is about you that's what jesus is trying to get us to understand We're in this community. Yes, God inhabits you individually. Yes, when you were saved, you were given the promise of the Holy Spirit. But there's a special way that God inhabits His people collectively as the body of Christ. So let's keep going deeper on this, okay? Here's a key word in the Greek, and we only bring up the Greek or the Hebrew when it's really important. I think this is... So take a look at this word. Koinonia, perhaps you've heard of the term... <clears throat> and it generally means community and fellowship. Well, the ordinary usage would tell us that it's a it's a word that would mean we have something in common. So if you belong to a community group, maybe you belong to a club, right? The coin collectors club, or the stamp collectors club or whatever it is that you do a country club. This is you have something in common. But that's not the biblical use of this term and that's not how it's used in the New Testament. Here's the biblical usage. It's active participation. Active participation. Owning a share in something. So do you understand what's being said here? If you're in a community of believers, you are to be actively involved. Actively plugged in to the body. Okay? We're going to keep building on that. Let me give you a quote from Eugene Peterson. He wrote in 10,000 places in his book. This is a minister, scholar, theologian, author, poet. He was uh, in the 20th century, died in 2018. Listen to these words. These are important words. I didn't come to the conviction easily, but finally there was no getting around it. There can be no maturity in the spiritual life, no obedience in following Jesus, no wholeness in the Christian life apart from an immersion. Pause on that. You see the picture of the millstone being immersed? Now you're being immersed into the, into the sea if you cause someone to stumble. Here he says that there, there's no Christian life apart from the, an immersion and embrace of community. I am not myself by myself, community, community. Not the highly vaunted individualism of our culture is the setting in which Christ is at play. So you hear what he's saying? We, we live in a cultural context that is steeped in, in what the sociologists, Robert um, Bella and, and others and Charles Taylor have written under the term expressive individualism. You've heard the term where the individual trumps the community or the family. Where there used to be a a significant value in being plugged into community, certainly family, and there still are cultures like that. In this cultural context, that doesn't fly anymore. The, The sumum bonum would be the greatest value for the individual is what the individual wants and what the individual desires, regardless of how it impacts the community. But let me tell you how that has impacted the church. We have arguably more professing Christians now than ever. Now attendance is down. People are leaving the church to be sure. The average attendance now is once a month across this nation. But with the the number of professing Christians up and the impact of the church down, you'd have to ask the question, why? I think this is why. We have more individuals who profess faith in Christ than we do connected to a community. And God has a very special way of inhabiting the community to make a difference in this world. I think that's one of the primary reasons why we're having so little impact. We have individuals that simply come to church. They come to, to, to get a message. Some maybe even take a class. But they're not fully engaged and plugged into community life. I'm going to show you something in, in a moment. So that, there's the question. How, how plugged are you into the community of believers that you're a part of? Do do, you know why a lot of people go to bigger, bigger churches where, where there's lots and lots of people? Anonymity. They tell me that all the time. I get to go in the back, go out the back. Nobody knows me. I don't have to. You know what they're saying? I don't have to get involved in, in somebody else's mess. And getting involved in somebody else's life is what? Messy. But that's what Jesus said that we're supposed to be a part of. A community of what? We're, we're, we, we call ourselves what? A hospital, not a health club. A hospital is where people go who are sick, and everybody was here is sick. There's something wrong with all of us. But when you open yourself up to community, what happens? You now sacrifice some of your time, some of your talent, often some of your treasure, and most are unwilling to do that. So Jesus forms a community. You ever wonder why? You ready for this? Jesus comes in flesh. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God. He took on flesh and dwelt among us. Establishes the church. Why, why didn't he just do it by himself? Did he need the apostles? No need. Does he need us? No, no. So why does he do it? He gave us a demonstration of what community was to look like. So he invests three years into the lives of these 12 men to give us a picture of what the church is to look like. You're to be eating together, spending time together, communing together, serving together, giving together, bearing one another's burdens. So he didn't have to do it that way, but he did. But now let me show you two points so that we can be clear. God is not going to save you in community. So you children, you kids who have grown up in a Christian home, just because you're in a Christian home doesn't mean you're saved. Now God is pleased to save in the line of generations. He's made that clear from the Old Testament. Very pleased. Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Yes? But you're saved not because you're in a Christian family. You're saved not because you're part of a community. You're saved because Jesus saves you. And he saves you individually. So I want to give you a couple pictures of what this looks like. And it will resonate with you. So the very first thing is you're saved individually. That's the very first thing. So think of these few examples. The woman at the well. That's an individual salvation. Right? Remember Zacchaeus in a tree? Come down, we're going to go eat at your house. How about the paralytic on the mat? All saved individually. But it didn't stop there. They were saved individually, but they were saved to community. Jesus places a new obligation upon everybody that he saves. He puts them in a community. He puts them in the body of Christ. Today, people don't want church membership. Why? So that I'm not committed. I can come and go as I please. Are you allowed to do that? Yes. You can do whatever you want to do. But let me tell you something that happened on Friday. When I really thought, Katie, we weren't sure what was happening with her. She couldn't stop vomiting. She had this massive headache on a scale of 1 to 10. She said it was an 8. It was pounding. I'm thinking she's got to be bleeding in her brain. We're taking her to the hospital. She has this numbness on the right side. And when we talked, to the doc, we called Dr. Meggs and Dr. Babayan. And it said that the, the, the numbness, is, is that's not good. I, we don't understand the numbness. Numbness in her face, on her tongue. And I'm thinking, oh my gosh. She's going to die. We get her to the hospital. She still can't stop throwing up. And who walks into the, into the room? Dr. Babayan. He had his own procedures that day. But he walks into the room to bring comfort to Kim and I. Now Katie's fine. She's actually here today. Thank you for your prayers. They don't know what it was. Two years ago, she had meningitis. They don't know what attacked her. But she looked like she was going to die. And of course, as a parent, your pictures are, I'm picturing her in a coffin. And I'm out of my mind. But with every passing moment, there's another vibration on the phone. Another, we're praying for you. We're with you. We love Katie. That was community that's what got us through Friday it's community you don't know how badly you need community until you need it badly you can't do this by yourself in those early years of having the tank and all of the issues that he had medically without a community so here's some of the pictures of what Jesus says we are we're a body Look at your body before you leave. It's a unit, it's all together. We're a family of faith. And we're a temple of the Holy Spirit built with living stones. We'll come back to that in a moment. So you really have two options. You're saved individually, and you can say it's Jesus and me. And that's true, it's Jesus and me. But if you leave it there, then you've missed the deepest aspect of your entire salvation. You have to go from Jesus and me to Jesus and we. Because your salvation is not about you, it's about Him. And he brings you into community so that you can be a part of something bigger than yourself. You ever wonder why cults have been so successful? Why? in drawing kids out of their homes and their families? Why? Because they give them some kind of meaning and purpose that they were unable, for whatever reason, to find back at home or on the college campus. They understand that we're wired for what? Something bigger than the self. You're not made to live in intentional isolation, no matter how desperately you seek it. That, that was the way I operated. I, I wanted to be isolated. I remember, oh, I will never forget this. And it was Katie, I think it was Katie, who said this. I, this was one of my things I would do when the phone would ring, right, back before the, the cell phones. And, and you'd have to answer the phone. And I'd say, if they ask for me, tell them I'm not here. Or if the the knock on the door. Tell him I'm not home. And Katie said to me, Daddy, how come you have us tell them you're not home when you're home? Why don't you go to your room now, little one, and and read a book? (laughs) Read a book. I I didn't want to get involved in community. It's a mess you guys are really messed up. (laughs) No, you are. And some of you are so much more messed up than others, and I know who you are personally. And it's a constant drain. It is. But I'm stuck. Why? Because I'm all in. Because I know what community means to me and my family. We couldn't live without it. And yes, it's messy. And yes, it drains you. But it's the only way to live. And Jesus knew that. So he brings 12 in to give us a picture. This is what it looks like. This is your new family. And it transcends the family that you have by natural birth. Because this is one that's been birthed through my blood. Number two. We saw the mark. Now it gets deeper. Now the mandate. If your brother sins, rebuke him. If he repents, forgive him. If he sins against you seven times in a day and seven times comes back to you and says, I repent, forgive him. Okay, what is that all about? You want to know what it's about? It's about probably the greatest challenge that most people have in the body of Christ today. Do you know how many millions of people in the church are buried under the weight of unforgiveness? You know what unforgiveness is? You know what bitterness is? It's the poison that you drink waiting for the other person to die. That's what bitterness is. People who simply say to me, I I will never forgive you for what you've done. I cannot forgive you for what you've done. I refuse to forgive you for what you've done. Let me make a point. Forgiveness is not an option, and that's not minimizing anything that's ever happened to you. It's not. A lot of bad stuff's happened to a lot of people. But forgiveness is not an option. But here's, here's what you have to make sure that you're clear and understanding. And this often is not understood by people that I'm counseling and coaching. And they'll say to me, well, I, I thought we, we, we were forgiving each other, and, and, and now we can get on with life. Hold on. Hold on. Forgiveness is not an option, but trust, that may take quite a bit of time, and, and for some, their, trust may never be regained. Don't equate forgiveness and trust. Don't do that. The Bible doesn't do that. Two totally separate things. Forgiveness is not an option. You need to forgive it. Why? You need to be free. You will never be free until you forgive. But to trust, that needs to be re-earned. That may take some time it may be instant depends on the offense but don't equate the two to say I can't forgive yes you can forgive maybe you cannot trust that's but don't mix the two that's what people do I can't yes you can forgive you can get free you you, we say in the Lord's Prayer forgive us our debts as we forgive our You, you 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 can forgive but you don't have to trust Certainly not early. Some people have been incredibly wronged. Trust may never be regained when you damage that to such an extent. But forgiveness is not an option. So Bonhoeffer, German pastor, theologian, when we talk about living in community and forgiveness and and repentance and, and being plugged in, listen to what he says About being sinned against or watching somebody who's in sin and and what we're supposed to do. What does a community of believers really look like if you're really connected to each other at a heart level? You ready? Bollenhofer in his classic exploration of the Christian community and life together. If you haven't gotten a copy, it's worth a read. And remember, he, he lived 39 years German theologian, 39 years, was here in America, felt that he had to go back to Germany to resist the Nazi regime, was arrested toward the end of the war, and in 45 he was executed, the year the war ended. 39 years old, but understood community at such a deep level. He writes these words. Ready? Nothing can be crueler than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Do you understand what he just said? If you see somebody going over the cliff, go get them. Go get them. You got a little child at the house and and, and your little daughter's going going over to the stove and you've just boiled some water. The stove is hot. You grab her and say, stop. Don't go there. Don't do it. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. What is he saying? We're responsible for each other. We need each other. We matter to each other. If you're living in an isolation, if you're living a life where you just simply show up, get fed, and leave... You're not the community that Christ has called you to be. He wants us involved in each other's lives, and that's why He gave us a demonstration community with the apostles. He didn't need their help. He certainly didn't need the aggravation for three years. And think of the aggravation just Peter brought him. One time he had to say, Get behind me, Satan. And wouldn't it have been easier for him to say, Man, I. Who who needs you guys? James and John asking for chief seats. These are messed up people. But Jesus said, that's all I have is messed up people. So I got no choice. I got to use messed up people. And that's what we are. Stay with me. Let's let's get back to P- oh Peter's the classic foot and mouth disease guy. Watch, watch. Peter asked in Matthew eighteen, "Lord, how often?" Now he's he's setting up the he's, he's trying to set Jesus up, and he's and he's he's boasting now in front of his his friends. The rabb- rabbinical teaching in the ancient Jewish culture said you must forgive up to three times. Wrong me, I forgive you. You Wrong me, I forgive you. Wrong me, I forgive you. You Wrong me, you're out. So he knows the the number three. So notice what he says. Lord, how often will my brother sin against me and I forgive him? As many as seven times, he doubles the number and adds one. Why? He's Peter. He's a big man. I'm going to show my brothers here how, how, how... Much I understand forgiveness. I got this one, Lord. And now, Jesus replied, I do not say to you seven times. And you must be thinking, oh, he's probably going to say five or six. I really went above and beyond. But 77. Can you hear, Peter? What? Peter, Peter, you know what your problem is? You know what your problem is? You don't understand how often I have to keep forgiving you. You know what? One of the greatest struggles I had as a very brand new Christian, my first mentor, very first mentor, actually he's here today, his name is Jeff Beal, Sr. We were going through some of the scriptures, and I asked a question. I said, you know, I really have a problem with this man after God's own heart. How can you possibly tell me David is a man after God's own heart, after all that David did? He sleeps. First of all, he doesn't go off to war, so he, so he denies his calling as a, as, a, as a king. He stays home, lingers around on the roof, notices this woman bathing, Bathsheba, sends to inquire about her, brings her into his bedchamber, sleeps with her. She gets pregnant, brings her husband back from the front line, tries to get him to cover up for him, And sleep with her, he won't. Sends him back to the front line with this instruction to the commander. Put him out front, pull back, where the fighting will be fierce. And he'll die. And I said to Jeff, I said, this Christianity thing doesn't make any sense to me. You tell me this is a man after God. And then the great repentance, Psalm Psalm 51. Judge me not by thy righteousness, but by thy mercy and thy grace, O God. And I said to him, I don't get this thing. And he says, you know what your problem is? I says, no, what's my problem? He says, your problem is you think you're better than David. I said, well, you bet I do. Of course I am. I just sleep with my wife and send somebody out and get him. Right. I didn't do that. He says, no, you've done far worse. What? No, you've done far worse. Not until I got that did I understand what the scriptures were teaching about the heart being sinful and deceitful and who can know it and understand it. We're all worse than David. We're all, stay with me, here's, here, here's how Paul, 2 Corinthians, writes these words. And who is equal to such a task? Now, I've pulled it out of context, but I'm allowed to do that because I'm the pastor. <laughs> but I'm just using it for a teaching principle. So it, it was in another context, but I'm just pulling it out for a teaching, and, and I'm allowed to do that. So in this context, for forgiveness, who's equal to the task? How do you keep forgiving when you're being wronged over and over? How do do you do that? Two words. Chief. Sinner. You have to know that you're the chief sinner. If you don't, if you don't, you will always see yourself as superior to the person that you're, who is seeking your forgiveness that you can't forgive. Why? You'll think to yourself, I could never, you ever thought this way? Somebody's wronged you and you say to yourself, I would never, ever do that to you. Perhaps you've said that. I could never. Why? You're better. You're superior. So you could never forgive him. You're not on an equal playing field. So what does Paul do? Paul sees himself as worse than anyone. And he knew that he was. He knew who he was. He knew who he was on the road to Damascus. He knew that he was persecuting the church and killing Christians and putting him in prison. And he realized what Christ had done for him. But not just on that day. Every moment after that day, he knew he needed the mercy and grace of God. Who's equal to the task? Only those who understand how sinful they really are. You will never be able to understand the doctrine of the forgiveness of sins until you understand how desperately you need it moment by moment by moment. Finally, the master. Here's the key that holds it all together. We have to look at the master of the community. We see, we see the mark, we see the mandate, now the master. The apostles said to the Lord, here's the key word, Lord. Take a look in the Greek, kurios, means master or owner. They knew who they were speaking to. They knew who Jesus was. They knew that he was their master and their owner. They knew he had absolute authority. And what do they ask for? More faith. Increase our faith. How does Jesus reply? It's a very famous passage. We've seen it before in Luke. Back in uh, an earlier chapter, we preached on it. But he says, if you have faith as small as a mustard seed, it's a, about the smallest seed you could possibly have. He says, you can say to this mulberry tree, so you can say something, you can be activating your faith. Watch this. You could say, be uprooted and planted in the sea, and it will obey you. Now, what is he saying? He, he's, don't go outside and say to one of the trees on the way and, and say, I, I've got this kind of faith that the pastor's telling me about, and walk by the palm tree and say, be uprooted and go to the parking lot and land on that guy's car that parked too close to me this morning. No, he's not saying that. What is he saying? He's talking about your faith, but he's making a deep point. It's not the amount of faith. It has nothing to do with the amount of faith. Every, listen, everybody's given the same faith. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Are we clear? Not some two-tier system, some second entry of the Holy Spirit that exalts certain Christians above. No, 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 no. Stop all that. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Not the amount of faith, but the activation. Listen, the activation of faith through obedience. You have all the faith you need. How much faith did the woman who was hemorrhaging for 12 years have? How much faith? Same faith that everyone else had, but she activated her faith by reaching for the garment of the Lord Jesus Christ. She had enough faith to activate it and she believed she could be healed and she was instantly healed. 12 years of hemorrhaging. What did she know? What did her faith know? And what should all of our faiths know? There's bread in his thread. She reached for the thread and she touched it and she was healed she believed in christ it's not the amount of faith oh i wish i had the faith of that person over there or the faith of that person no 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 you have all the faith you will ever get activated through obedience to the lord jesus christ activate act on your faith people say well i don't know what to do act as if you do just start moving. You know what God said to me? People say to me, I got to pray about. Do you know some things you don't need to pray about? Pastor, you say I don't need to. No, no listen to me carefully. There is, and the Bible tells us there are some things you don't need to pray about. God is crying out to, to, to G- Moses is crying out to God in Exodus fourteen fifteen. 15. What's God say? Get off your knees and stop praying and start moving. I'm tired of listening to you. Activate your faith. I've already told you where I'm taking you. I've already told you I'm gonna bring you into the promised land get moving well I don't know if I you don't need to know you need to go follow wherever he's leading I don't have the answers you don't need the answers you have him oh but we're not done now we get to a real sticky part that just it doesn't make sense you got a servant working in the field all day comes home and then you have this passage you have this passage, it doesn't seem to, to, to make sense, but it will in a moment. Stay with me. He's got to serve the master, then he gets to eat. But he's got to serve the master. To, he works all day, comes back, has got to serve the master, then he gets to eat. Why? Watch this. Jesus is talking about you and me. Would he thank the servant because he did what he was told to do? So you also... When you have done everything you were told to do, should say, we are unworthy servants, we have only done our duty. So you ask the question, why no thanks? Jesus isn't making the point, don't be thankful. That, that's not You're missing the point. Why does the servant deserve no thanks? Because the servant gave no grace. What is grace? Something that's unmerited, right? It, 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 it's, it's a gift, it's unmerited. The servant just simply did his duty. That's all the servant did. So... The servant doing his duty earned no thanks from the master. And what is Jesus really saying to us? If you were to live the rest of your life, every moment of every day, sold out in service to me, all you would have done is what was your duty to do to me. So now here here's the Pharisees ready. Here's the Pharisees Paul addresses them who has ever given to God that God should repay them the Pharisees believed they had God in their debt We do all of these things all of the time for God and God owes us people in the church believe if I do all these things God owes me a good life. I come to church I pray I'm in a Bible study. I give my time talent and treasure God owes me God owes you nothing would have been easy for us to be standing there on Friday with Katie looking like she's ready to die and saying I can't believe this. People do that. How could you let this happen to us? We're serving you. All of us. This is the thanks we get? Who has ever given to God that God should repay them? Community and a biblical truth got me through that. When I looked at her laying there, she's not mine. She's his. And he has the right to do whatever he wants with her. That's why it's so important for me to do what God's called me to do with the little bit of time that I have with her, and my children, and our church. How do we close? Here's what I think is devouring the church today. The doctrine of distance. Whoever isolates himself seeks his own desire. He breaks out against all sound judgment. You know how many people are living in intentional isolation? You know that you can be in a massive church, massive congregation, and be living in intentional isolation. You don't know anyone and no one knows you. And you're happy with that. You're left alone. You just simply want to be left alone. Remember back in the scriptures in Genesis where Cain cries out to God, am I my brother's keeper? What's the answer to that question? Yes. You're responsible for your brothers and sisters. You're responsible for your family of faith. 1 Peter 2, 5, 9, and 10. You yourselves are like living stones. You're being built up. It's a, it's a present progressive which means it's happening right now. So you're being built up in this very moment. You're a stone and you're being built up, listen to this, into a spiritual house. Let me make a comment on the spiritual house. There's only one time in the New Testament, there's only one time when you are identified individually as the house of God. And we do it to the kids all the time, right? Your body is the temple of the because we're telling them to be obedient, especially if they head off to college. Don't be, don't be doing any crazy things when you go to college. Your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. That's the only time it's speaking individually about you and you being the temple. Every other time it's a community. Every other time it's a group. Every other time it is the collective spiritual house of God. Every other time. And yet we have reduced it to the individual. It's about me. My salvation is about me. So I come and I get fed and then I go back into my own life and, 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 and then I'll, I'll, if I have time, I'll come back next week and I'll do it again. But he says you're a chosen race. Look, look at these categories. A royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Once, here it is, once you were not a people but now you are God's people. You are God's people and you're responsible for each other. Now, take a look at the picture. Ready? Here's the key. These are picture these are living stones and I want you to picture yourself somewhere in the middle Okay, so just you pick anyone that's you Right if you're bigger, you can take a little bigger stone if you're little take a little stone whichever one you want whichever one So take one in the middle and notice that the stones above and to the side are dependent upon that stone. So imagine that stone being pulled out Is the wall weakened Sure, all the stones above that stone are, are weakened. They become a little less stable because the stone is out. But what happened to the stones below? They're weakened because they were dependent upon the one above. So here's the question. Are you so connected to a community of believers that if you were to be pulled out, you just don't show up? It would matter. The wall would shake. The foundation would be unstable. Are you that connected to a community of believers? That's what Jesus says we're all supposed to be. We're supposed to matter to each other. We're supposed to miss each other when we're not here. We are interconnected to each other. And if you don't put in, listen to me, Every one of you has special gifts, talents, and abilities that God has given you. If you don't put them in, we're all diminished because of that. God doesn't need us. We need each other. And I'll tell you, when the storm winds blow, you'll know how valuable having a community is. C.S. Lewis. You've never read The Four Loves. He has a chapter on friendship. He, he gets this better than anyone, anyone I've ever read. He had a group. C.S. Lewis had a group. They were called The Inklings. And this goes back to the 30s, the 30s to uh, just the end of uh, the 40s. And this was a group of um, literary um, geniuses, if you will. It was an informal discussion group. And they were associated with the University of Oxford in England. And two of the most famous names would be C.S. Lewis and then J.R.R. Tolkien. His name is Ronald. And he writes about what happens when Charles, who was the editor at the Oxford Press, Charles dies suddenly. So, so get the picture. They have this group where they meet together and these three were really the closest and it was Charles and, and Ronald and, and Clive, C.S. Lewis. And then Charles is a stone in the wall, he's pulled out. Charles dies, and he's gone. And Lewis discovered something profound. Listen to what he writes in the four loves in the chapter on friendship. And this is true of community today, right now, right in this church and every other church. In each of my friends, there is something that only some other friend can fully bring out. By myself, I am not large enough to call the whole man into activity. I want other lights than my own to show all his facets. Now that Charles is dead, I shall never again see Ronald's reaction to a specifically Charles joke. Far from having more of Ronald, having him to myself now that Charles is away, I have less of Ronald. In this, friendship exhibits a glorious nearness by resemblance to heaven itself where the very multitude of the blessed, which no man can number, increases the fruition which each of us has of God. You deepen your experience of God through other people. Stay with this. For every soul seeing Him in her own way doubtless communicates that unique vision to all the rest. You experience God differently than I do. But we need each other's experience to fully understand who God is. He goes on. That says, an old author is why the seraphim and Isaiah's vision are crying holy, holy, holy to one another. The more we thus share the heavenly bread between us, the more we shall have. What is Lewis saying? It takes a community to understand an individual. He thought now that he had Ronald by himself... He'd have more of Ronald, but he had less because Charles could no longer interact with Ronald. If that's true of finite beings, you and I, how much more true is that of our relationship with God? I saw more of God on Friday when I was in deep distress when Dr. Babayan walked in to the room. That was community. And every text that came after that, that was community. And I saw more of God through you. We need each other to understand who God is. Have a quiet time. Do your devotions. But it's not enough. You need community. If you've never had that, if you've never surrendered your life to Christ, Jesus has come. With outstretched arms and nail-scarred hands, Christ has come to me. This is a time of invitation. Put your doing down. You can't live apart from God and live any kind of meaningful life. God has ordained that you cannot. So Jesus says, you know that there's something wrong, and you know that you cannot fix it. I have fixed it for you. Come to Christ, all who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. We'll pray in just a moment. If you've never prayed, pray with me. For the rest of us, understand the value of community. We were never, ever designed to live apart from God, nor were we designed to live apart from each other. When people say, I don't need the church to be saved, I see you're right, you don't. But you need the church to be sanctified, for God to grow you into the person he's calling you to be. You absolutely need the church. And I know the church is messed up, because we're messed up. You know, it was Gandhi who said this. I love your Christ. It's you Christians I can't stand much. That's the problem. Us. But that's all we have is us. Come to Christ. Father, if there's anyone who's never prayed to receive Jesus, now is a moment of salvation. Pray these words, very simple words. Oh God, I've heard the truth today. i heard the gospel. I know that I'm a sinner and I know I cannot fix myself. Give me the gift of repentance and faith. I cry out to you, be merciful to me, the sinner. I repent of my sin. I want Christ to be the Lord of my life. And salvation is yours this day. If you have trusted in Christ by grace through faith, salvation is yours today. You are now you were saved individually but now you've been saved to a community come to the community of faith and pour your life out for your brothers and sisters and father for the rest of us help us to understand that it's Jesus and we not Jesus and me and we thank you for this truth in Christ's name amen would you all stand